0: This morning, we're going to return to what we have been studying from the book of Colossians. And we're going to begin in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Before I begin our lesson, though, I would like to mention to you that several people have asked if I was going to show the photos of our most recent trip to the Bible lands, to Greece and Turkey. And Lord willing, we're going to do that tonight And so if you would like to invite others to come, we encourage you to do that. Uh, We will do that as well as work in together a biblical lesson in our study together tonight. Now Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. I want to begin by asking a question as I have in the beginning of each of these lessons, hopefully to focus our minds in the direction of what we're going to study the first question I'd like to begin by asking is, does some music sound to you more like noise and more like an irritating noise or an irritating sound than it does music? I'll give you a personal illustration. A couple of weeks ago, I had gone to the hospital to make some visits. As I was coming back, I pulled up to the red light and stopped, and a gentleman pulled up next to me, and I know he loved his music because his windows were rolled up, my windows were rolled up, but his music was so loud that the rearview mirror on my vehicle was vibrating. So I know he, he really loved it because he had it so loud, he, so much that he wanted everybody else to hear it as well. But the truth is, to me, it was one of the awfulest sounds I think I've ever heard. He was listening to rap, and I don't enjoy rap. I don't like the vulgar lyrics that go along with most of it, nor do I like the sound. It's irritating to me. Just to let you know, if I we're writing together sometimes, I don't care for rap. It's an irritating sound. When Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, In verse 1, he was describing a man who would be able to have the ability to speak with the tongues of men and angels. But notice how he describes it. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The truth is, The noise of the cymbal by itself to many of us is just the crash, and it's a noise. And he says that's all it becomes if I speak and do not have love. Now, let me ask you the second question that goes along with this. If someone is going to play music for you, would you prefer that they play something that you like or something that they like? Now you think about it. It's for you. They're wanting to provide music for you. Is it going to be something that you prefer or something they prefer? Now most of the time we know that that's just an obvious answer. If it's for me, I want something I enjoy. Well that brings us to our thought. Does our music matter to God? Does He really care? Does it matter what songs we sing? Does it matter the matter in, the manner in which we present it to God? Well, this morning we're going to look at three things from these two verses. The first part of verse 16, we're going to see how the Word dwells within us and must dwell within us. Number two, we're going to look at didactic worship. Now, I know many of you may not use the word didactic in your normal conversation, but I would dare to venture that many of you know what it means. If you don't, we'll explain it in just a few minutes. And then finally, in verse 17, to talk about the divine will, what God wants each of us to do and how He wants us to do it. Let's begin with the first part of verse 16, where Paul writes, Let the word of Christ be. Dwell in you richly in all wisdom. For us to properly understand that, we need to just simply break it down to begin to understand the various parts of it. He says, Let the word of Christ, if you think about that, even with what Paul has already written, the Colossians, he has an understanding of what this should mean. It does not mean the Old Testament. It is distinct from the Old Testament. If you go back to chapter 2 in verse 14, he says, "...having blotted out the handwriting of ordinances, which was contrary to us, and he has taken that out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." You see, he wants us to understand we're not living by the word of the Old Testament, the word of Moses, We're not living by the words of the prophets. In fact, when the Hebrew writer wrote, he wrote in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, having of old time, spoke to the fathers in various ways and in various manners by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. You see, there's a distinction there. But there's also a second distinction. It's a distinction from the doctrines of men. Going back again to Colossians 2, this time to verse 22. He talks about those people who would say, Touch not, taste not, handle not, all things that perish with using. He says, which are according to the doctrines and the commandments of men. So when he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, we have to visualize in our mind, this is distinct from the Old Testament. This is the word of Christ. This is distinct from the doctrines of men because this is the Word of Christ. It is equivalent to, or the same as, the Gospel of Christ. Let me illustrate. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I didn't put verse 17, but you go on and he says, For in it is contained the righteousness of God. In the gospel of Christ is contained the righteousness of God. That's how I become righteous, how I stay righteous with God. Then you drop down to Philippians 1 and verse 27. And he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, you and I have to make sure that everything we do reflects that we are following the gospel of Christ. Now that gospel comes when men like Paul taught it. Again in the book of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Folks, here's the bottom line. The word of Christ is what is preached whether it was Philip preaching him at Samaria, or whether Paul preaching Christ to the Colossians, this is the message of who he is and what he wants from, him, from us. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. When you look at certain words, they can reveal a lot to you. This word is in the present tense, in the imperative mood. Present means that it's something that you keep on doing. It's not just something you do once. To say that it's in the imperative mood means that it's a command, something that I have to do. It's an ongoing obligation. I've got to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly today, tomorrow, next year, the rest of my life then it can mean different things for something to dwell in us. It depends on what is dwelling. For instance, when I go to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul is telling Timothy, he says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. You see, there was people who had faith, they had confidence, they had trust in God. That's exactly who Timothy and his mother and grandmother were. On the other hand, there's some people who let sin dwell in them. In Romans chapter seven and verse 17, Paul says, "But it is now, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me." I've talked to people recently. In fact, I had a study with a fellow who was worried about sin dwelling in him, still having control of his life. Folks, sin can dwell in us just like the Word of Christ can dwell in us, just like faith can dwell in us. I think it's best summarized in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16 as Paul writes, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and they walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Whatever dwells in you determines the direction you're going to go. Either you're letting God's word dwell in you, guide you, or you are letting something else, perhaps sin, sin, Or things such as that. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Words are translated abundantly in several other places. Let it it be there, a lot of it. Not just a little. Let me give you some illustrations from the Bible. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The more I have God's word in me the better prepared I am to confront the temptations to sin. Because if I know God's word well, the more of it I have dwelling in me, when an opportunity to sin presents itself, I'm ready to face it. In John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Going on to verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He's saying, abide in my word. Now that's different than the word abiding in you. To abide in the word means that I'm spending time there. I'm learning it. And then you go to John 15 verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. It's talking about letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. John, 1 John 2.14 says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. That's really how you and I are able to face the devil. Now let's go to the second part of our lesson found in the second part of verse 16. And there we read, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, he uses the words teaching and admonishing. The word teaching comes from the Greek word didasko. We get our English word didactic from that. And that refers to a form of communication. When someone gets up and teaches formally, that is, they stand in front of an audience and they speak and they instruct, that's didactic communication, teaching. So we call the second part didactic worship. We're saying the kind of worship that teaches That means that when we gather here and we're offering our praise, our adoration, our glory to God, we're really teaching one another. But he also uses the word admonish. And the word admonish means to warn, to put someone in mind. Now here's someone who's doing something that is dangerous. Perhaps they are not being careful, they're I always think of electricity when I think of something dangerous and people always seem to be so uh, unafraid. And when you grab a hold of something that has a live wire, it has a potential to hurt you and to kill you. You have to warn people. Make sure you turn the power off before you do this. Warn them. That's admonishing. So our song should teach, that is instruct, and they also should admonish one another. Let me give you a good example. I just tried to think off the top of my head of a song that I felt like did a great job of that. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight manfully onward dark passions subdued. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you. Strengthen and keep you. You see, when you start thinking about songs like that, what do they do? They teach us. They also encourage us, admonish us. Watch those dark passions. That's the kind of singing that God wants from us. Songs of praise and worship can certainly teach and warn. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, as the Hebrew writer is trying to, to explain the role of Jesus in the realm of man, he says, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. He said, I'm going to declare to the congregation, to the my brethren... Who God is, His name. But He also says that I'm going to sing praise to one another. Teach and admonish one another. Those one another passages, and there are several of them, indicate individual responsibility. I cannot pray for you. You have to pray yourself. I cannot partake of the Lord's Supper for you. You have to do that yourself. I cannot sing for you, nor can you sing for me. That's the reason why many people walk into our buildings and they look and they say, where is your choir place? We don't have choirs. Why don't we have choirs? Because we're supposed to sing to one another. That means that you and I, every one of us, have an obligation to sing. You see, some of our brethren have begun to try to mimic the choirs. Some of you don't travel a whole lot, but some of the congregations now are putting forth praise teams. They're putting four, five, six people in front, giving each of them a microphone and letting them sing over the congregation. And people justify this by saying, Oh, but it sounds so much better to us. Really? Going back to the question I asked in the beginning. If someone is providing music for us, do you want the music that you want? Or do you want the music that they want? When God asks us to sing... And we do so, are we doing what he wants or what we want? That's a very, very important question. As you go further, he identifies the kind of songs we are to sing by describing them as psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I have tried to look at these, and what you end up with is each one of them are very similar but yet, each have a little bit of a distinction. For instance, if you were to talk about law officers, you might could say a man is a member of the Tennessee law enforcement. You might could say that he is a sheriff or a sheriff's deputy. You might could also say that he is an officer of the court. All of those could be the same person, and yet describing it from just a slightly different perspective. When you say psalms, these are a song of praise, a sacred song, most often reflected in the Old Testament where David wrote songs. The lyrics of those were very important because they reflected a sacred praise offered to God. Hymns are a song with a religious context. They are praise Many times a a soldier who would return from war in in a secular context would have a hymn of praise to the job that he had done. Some of you may remember the ones from the last generation or the last century when Johnny comes marching home again. But you have to realize these are sacred songs. And so he adds a third part That is spiritual songs. Songs with a spiritual message. Now if the songs that are presented to us are not psalms, they are not hymns, they are not spiritual songs, then that's not what God wants to listen to. There's a lot of songs that I may enjoy, but they don't have any place in the worship. There are a lot of people who feel that this time or maybe the, the month of July is a time for intense patriotism. And maybe we ought to sing some patriotic songs. No. That's not what God asks us to do. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Notice a couple of things about that. With grace. Grace means favor, gratitude, thankfulness. You know, when we talk about grace, we often think about God's grace to us. But do you know that God instructs us that we are to let our speech be with grace, seasoned with a little salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one? If my speech is to be with grace, it means to be with a little favor, a little gratitude, a little thankfulness. Maybe not just a little, a lot of it singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, thankfulness, gratitude. When you sing, do you sing count your many blessings? Name them one by one. You know, when somebody gives you something and you say, okay, thank you. What do you think they believe in their mind? They didn't appreciate that. He wasn't thankful for that. How do you think God feels when he looks at us and our voices reveal or reflect no enthusiasm, no appreciation, no gratitude? Then he says, in your hearts. That's where the melody is made. It's where we have inside of us Listen to Ephesians 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. You see, that's where it belongs. And then that last phrase, to the Lord, that is to whom it is directed. Now quickly, let's move to the third aspect of this passage And that is the divine will found in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word or deed. Word or deed. That's an all-encompassing phrase. Word, that's whatever I teach, whatever I say. Deed, that's what I do. I can't tell you how many passages in the Bible deal with that. Let me just give you an example. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 16, Paul says to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing you will save both yourself and them who hear you. Can you have a man who can teach the word beautifully, eloquently, knows it well, and yet not be right with God? Well, certainly you can. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I buffet my body daily, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. I can preach the truth and live a false life, and I stand condemned by God. Or what about a man who lives a good, upright, respectable life, what he teaches is false. That's man's condemnation. What God says, whatever you do in the words that you teach or in the way you live your life, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of. What does that mean? It means by his authority. In Matthew 28, verse 18, prior to giving the Great Commission, the Lord said to the apostles, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not some of it, all of it. Jesus stands at the very apex. He is the potentate. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever he says goes, you do it in his name, you do it by his authority. Let me give you a little bit of biblical instruction here. Luke 20 verse twenty-two, or verse 2. And he spoke to him saying, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? In Acts 4 verse 7 through 12. We'll skip a little bit up. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what authority have you done this? And then they responded, Let it be known to you all that, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you hold. And verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's just one name, one name that has real authority. Now as I try to bring all this together, let me point out this has some very important implications for us who are members of the Lord's church. Implication number one, God has designed a plan for worship. I can present to you a number of passages but let me just point out to you that with relation to 1 Corinthians 14 he said in verse 33 God is not the order of con- god is not the god of confusion but the god of peace verse 40 he said let all things be done decently and in order God has an order or a plan or a design for worship. It's my obligation to find out what it is in the Bible and do that. He expects people to respect His orders. I want to give you just two or three quick examples. Brother Gary made reference to one of these last week. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Nadab and Abihu took censors. They put incense on it. They offered profane or strange fire before the Lord. It did not come from where the Lord had told them to get it. And they died before the Lord. God took that seriously. Let me give you a second example. David has become king in Jerusalem. He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And in so doing, it says in verse 7 of First Chronicles 13, So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. You can visualize they're moving the ark of the covenant, sitting on a brand new cart. You come down to verse 9, And when they came to Kidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And he struck him because he put his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. Dropping down now to verse 12. David was afraid of God that day. Saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? Uzzah died. Why did he die? He touched the ark. You're not supposed to touch it. Well, how are you supposed to get it from place to place? If you can't put it on that... They had to find some way to put it on that cart. They must have used the poles that went into the rings to be able to pick the ark up. You go over to chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Then he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord broke out against us. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. Well, oh, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And they didn't do it the right way. Folks, there's a right and a wrong way to worship God. And there's some people saying, it really doesn't matter. Well, they're not consulting God. Our worship must reflect a respect for the specifics and the silence of God. David was a man who just really was enthusiastic. He wanted to do a lot of great things. He got in his mind, I need to build God a house of cedar. And here's the way God responded through the prophet Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent, and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He said, David, I know you want to do it, but did I ask you to do that? Well, no. No. If God's not asked us to do something, God has not ordered us to do something when we don't do it. It's just that simple. It's all about the divine will. Doing what God said, word or deed. What is music to God's ears? I've heard that phrase ever since I was a little, oh, that's just music to my ears. That means we're hearing something we like, something we enjoy. What is music to God's ears? It's the praise that He Himself desires. It is praise that is derived from the Word of Christ. It is praise that teaches and admonishes one another. It's praise that brings thanksgiving to God. I want to end with one verse. Hebrews 13 verse 15 Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. What a wonderful privilege God has given each of us to praise His name this morning by song and by prayer and by the preaching of His word. If you'll take your songbooks now. This is the time in each of our lessons where we extend the Lord's invitation. It's heaven's call. It's a call to those who are sinners to make their lives right with God. For the sinner who's never been baptized, who's never become a child of God, it is God's call for you to come to him in faith, repenting of your sins confessing that faith and being baptized. I'm sure that many of you, as you heard the preaching of the gospel this last week, may have thought, I really need to be baptized. You may have put it off and thought, well, now is the time. Uh, Let me encourage you to make that choice. If you're one of God's children, your life is in need of prayer, you can be restored. Would you come as we stand inside?